in this series called It's Not Your Treasure to Bury, we're talking about the very things God has given us that we are to use for the kingdom. And so if that is new to you or if that doesn't make sense or if that's kind of too many churchy words all put together, let me say it this way. God has equipped us to do the things that he has called us to do through the local church. And so here in the local church, here at Generations, this is where 99% of all people will do their ministry, their work, their life. Roughly 1% of people will be called to go out and start new churches or plant uh, or to do missions work in, in foreign countries. Most of us, what we do will be through the local church. And yes, if we move to another state or move to another town or something, yes, we'll have to figure out that local church piece. But the vast majority of all that we do for the sake of the kingdom is lived out through the local church. And so that's what we're looking at. What has God given us that is a treasure to us, that is our job to, to use for his glory, not, not us just to bury it. And this is based on two parables uh, that Jesus tells in the Gospels, and he talks about giving talents, which are coins, to three different people, and two of them, they go out and they put those talents to work, and they double them, and Jesus honors that. Well done, my good and faithful servants, he says. You've been faithful with a little, with a little I will give you more. Welcome. But to the one who takes that coin, the one who takes that talent, and he buries it instead of using it for the kingdom, he says, even what you have will be taken from you. He says, take that coin, give it to the ones that will use it. And so we're looking at what is it that God has given us that we are to use for the kingdom. And so what is that and, and how do we put it to work? So we've looked at a series of things. We've looked at how God gives us finances, how God gives us community, how God gives us talents, actual abilities to serve. I know it can get confusing with the talents that are actually coins in the Bible. But the very giftedness or talents or abilities that God has given us, how do we use those Things. And today, what I want to look at is this. Here's our main idea. It's kind of first slide. Not your treasure to bury, our witness to the world. Now, I was going to call that not our witness to bury, but with my background, I thought that'd be confusing for you. So I just figured we should hold on to that, all right? For those of you that are new, that'll be funny later. So uh, God's elect, that is, those who God has redeemed in Christ, live a world in a world that is not our own. Sorry for the typo. We need to be obedient people who know that the world is watching us. Our obedience to God is our loudest witness to the world in need of Christ. Two weeks ago, I think it was, might, might be three or something like that, but a couple weeks ago, we talked about the gospel, about the gospel's been given to us to give away. So please don't confuse that we are to share the gospel with the fact that we are to live as a witness to others, right? There's been a... Uh, a slogan or a phrase or a quote that's been floating around. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but pretty much scholasticism said that wasn't, that's probably not true, but it says this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Terrible message to the church, just for the record, right? Yes, your life should preach the gospel, but your mouth should preach the gospel also, right? So don't confuse this with you do one or the other, Right, Paul in Romans says, well, how will they know if they don't hear? And how will they hear unless you say something? Blessed are those who share the good news with others. Right? So there's a, there's a we must say something, but 
Let's just admit, no matter what we say, if our life doesn't look the same as our message, our, mes our message is undermined, right? This is not a do as I say, not as I do kind of thing, right? If you guys are in a community group and you're working through the, the Kevin Harney stuff, you, you, there's a phrase that will come up this week, that you can't lead what you don't live, right? You can't let your language be one thing and your life be another. The way you live is your loudest witness to the world, and it will either support the message that you say, or it will undermine it completely. I'll give you an example. And this is one that's been kind of a thing for the last 15, 20 years of ministry. Is imagine a young family walking together with a girl, maybe you know, junior high or high school, and there's a father and a mother, and they're married, and they're walking down the road, and they've been teaching this young girl, man, that the way she dresses, to dress appropriately, to dress with humility, right, to dress in such a way where she, she is not making her looks her most important value, right? Good, good way to frame that. And imagine they're walking down the road, and some woman or girl goes by dressed in a very short skirt and not a whole lot of top, and imagine the dad does this. That, right? Your Actions just undermined your message. What is your daughter now? How does your daughter now want to dress? Well, that's what gets men's attention. That's what gets my daddy's attention. Let that sit in for a minute. So our actions, our witness to the world is everything. And our words to the world will only have an impact if our lives match. That does not mean we're perfect. In fact, I would suggest that when we fail, our repentance speaks even louder than our obedience. So imagine as we talk about our witness to the world, just keep all that in mind if you would. So 1 Peter 1, I'm going to skip down to verse 13, I'm going to start there. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That former ignorance, as rough as that can sound, is really a way of saying when you did not know Jesus before. Or in this case, when you did not understand what your witness to the world was before. If these are, it's the first time you're ever hearing this today, then what you are responsible for is what you, what you do beyond today, right? When you learn something, you're no longer ignorant of it, and you are now accountable for it. And that's what, that's what uh, Peter, excuse me, is saying. He's preparing your minds for action, right? Set your hope fully on Christ, not in this world. Set your mind fully on Christ. Look down the road a little further, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former passions. There's a thing about Christianity that when we come to faith in Jesus, our life changes, right? If it doesn't, I would suggest we're not, we probably don't have that kind of belief. Belief changes action, right? If you truly believe something to be true, you will live in accordance to that. If you think it's okay to eat fast food three meals a day every day, you'll do it. When you get to a place where you believe that that's killing you, you will change. When you come to faith in Jesus, you will learn things, you will believe them, it will transform you. 
No one stays the same in Christ. So here's a passage. I know that because of the way I titled it, you'll never forget this one, but uh, a challenge every Christian faces when we take our eyes off eternity is falling back into old ways of living. Solomon says, like a dog that returns to his vomit as a fool repeats his folly. Peter exhorts us not to go backwards, but to be holy, which just means set apart for God, right? Don't go back to your old way of living. Continue to be transformed by Christ. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Talking about the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves. The exile here, the diaspora, as it says earlier in the passage, and, and Peter's reference has a lot of Jewish imagery. There was a diaspora, there was an exile or a dispersion of Jews throughout Asia Minor and throughout other areas. This is talking about the same thing that happened to the churches. Christians were being pushed out of the areas that they were in. They were being persecuted, and it was causing them to move. And as they get pushed out, what Peter is reminding them that the way they live will speak loudest to the communities that they land in. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, meaning Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter reminds them of the gospel. We've been saying this a lot lately over the last several months. We've been talking about, listen, we, we never leave the gospel, right? The gospel isn't this good news that introduces us to Jesus, that once we've met Jesus, then we move on to something different. The gospel is the very power that introduces us to Jesus, that transforms our lives, that, that keeps us in Christ and gives us a secure hope for the future. So we never leave the gospel. The, the work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the very things that the Holy Spirit applies to our life as we grow in Christ. He's reminding us that Jesus entered into human history to rescue sinful humanity from themselves. That Jesus went to live the life that you and I have been called to live, but we have failed. He did it correctly. He did it victoriously. So that he could go to the cross and pay our penalty, be buried in the grave for our forgiveness, raised from the dead to give us new life. And that in all of that, we don't have to be defined by our worst choices. Instead, we get to be defined by Christ's best decisions. Our worst decisions no longer define us. In Christ, it is victory that lives in us. That should transform every one of us from the sins we've committed that hold us back to the sins that have been committed against us that have wounded us and kept us held back. As Jesus ascends back to heaven, he says, listen, wait here, and I will pour my spirit out on you. And that spirit will then take and teach you and apply to you all that I've said and all that I've done, all that the scriptures have taught about me. Jesus says that to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, telling them, listen, you'll get it. The spirit will come. You'll learn. Really looking at a, a time like this, that all Christians 
engage in, a time of growth, a time of hearing, a time of learning, where the Spirit speaks loudest to our hearts. Verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Early message that we had on community, we took Jesus' commands to love one another. He goes on to remind Peter of this after Peter's pretty epic failures. As he calls him back, he reminds him of his love for others, that by this, meaning by our love for one another, that all humanity will know that we're disciples of Jesus. That's what Jesus tells us. Peter is now reminding us the words of Jesus. He says, after having your, purified your souls by obedience, verse 22, the truth for a sincere, sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So obedience is a theme today, obedience to Christ, right? Obedience to God. If we were to take and just look at what is it that God calls us to do or what is it that God calls us not to do, we have to qualify that with this. We don't become a Christian because of what we do or don't do. We begin to follow Jesus because what Jesus has done, right? We don't earn our salvation. We don't even contribute to our salvation. If we could contribute to salvation, we wouldn't need salvation. Salvation is saving. If I needed saving and I could participate in it, I wouldn't really need saving. But the impact of sin, the historical sin, from Adam on forward, Adamic sin and then our own sin, has left us, as Ephesians says, dead in our sins and trespasses, spiritually dead. And what can dead people do? Nothing. It's not a trick question. So Jesus must literally raise the spiritually dead in us, bring us to life so that we can follow him. And then in that, as Paul goes on in the same book to say, that we're saved by grace through faith, and that then we're saved to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Right? That we are then saved to live in a particular way, doing things God has called us to do. That is the treasure that we're to invest in the kingdom, whatever God has called us to, right? That fits our series. So if we took obedience as a measure of faith, can I have that slide, please, Marcia? If we took that and we just said, okay, how do we measure where our faith is right now? So the best way we or others can see our faith is our obedience to God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James teaches us, I will show you my faith by my works. So again, separate this from salvation. You can't earn that. You can't even contribute to that. You were once dead, and now we're alive, right? That's what so many of the great hymns sing about, like Amazing Grace talks about that. I was blind, but now I see. All things we can't do. But now in that, what do we do with this? What do we do with the gospel that's been invested into us? What do we do with it? Do we bury it inside ourselves and just try and become the most holy, whatever, spiritual person we can be? No. In fact, in order to be holy and spiritual, you need to invest that gospel into other people. Right? To be obedient, we need to take the message Jesus said to share, and we need to do that. But in the meantime, we have to figure out now, how does that transform our lives? How does Jesus transform our lives? How does the power of the gospel applied to us through the Holy Spirit, how does that transform us? And as that is transforming us, 
allowing that to be seen by ourselves, by others, and that's a great measure of where we are in our faith. Right? If we look at our lives and it's very similar to the way it looked last year in our faith, maybe we've slowed down or plateaued. If things are changing in our lives, if we're wrestling through things in our lives that God is showing us, maybe when we pray in the morning or read the Bible in the morning or at night or whatever you do, right? Then we're growing in our faith. That growth will, will play out in obedience to God. It's a great way for us to measure ourselves, but I will say this, whether we're doing that or not, the world around us is measuring our faith by how we live. Their perception of obedience to God may be wrong, but they're doing it anyways, right? They're looking at us, and I hate to do an us and them, but as Christians, the world around us is watching us and asking, do our lives match what we say about our faith? And again, sometimes they're gonna think Christianity means one thing and it doesn't, and, there, and there's a place for that, and there's a conversation there. But in the vast majority of things, Christians are doing things that don't look very Christian. Is that fair? I mean, I don't want to bring up social media, but let's bring up social media, right? <laughs> Is there a discernible difference between Christians online and non-Christians? I'm going to say no, just for the record. And we'll use that as an example today, but it's one of many. It's a political season. The speech out there is terrible. Christians and non-Christians alike. And Christians are on both sides of issues right now. So it's not like there's one simple lane to be in. And I would suggest if you think there's a simple lane to be in, you haven't really considered all of scripture and all of the issue. Because it's not always that easy. It's not always simple, it's most often complex. So our obedience is how the world will see us. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of a grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. After a strong call to obedience, the Bible often reminds us that this world is shorter than we give it credit for. Whenever we're suffering and God calls us to endure, he reminds us that this life is temporary and eternity is forever. He tries to give us perspective. If God is calling you to obey now and it's hard, which God is calling you to obey and it is hard, right? If it was easy, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be talking about something else. That's true. And God reminds us, endure. Endure, this life is short, and it's worth it. And I've called you to do something on my behalf. So how you live matters. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Speech is one of the ways that we are called to be obedient. And yes, speech is oral or written. Social media is speech, right? It's our speech. All five of those things can be sins of speech. Malice can be the intent. Deceit can be lying. Hypocrisy has been, can be saying one thing and doing another in your speech. Envy can be jealous and lust for, a, for something else, envious of something in your speech. And slander is speaking negatively about others. That's something we need to hear in a political season, right? Verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that 
By it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's spiritual milk reference is about us needing to learn right from wrong, right? Spiritual milk is this idea that when we are young in our faith, like when we are young in life, right? Just met this family, so little Max right here. Little Max is still like he got carried in. He'll get carried out, right? If you hear him, we love him, right? He doesn't know that yet. I hope he knows that. But the things he needs to learn and what Rob needs, well, bad example, but, uh, but <laughs> they're different, right? They're different. We need to learn right from wrong here in simple ways. Our children in their classrooms, they need to learn right from wrong in age-appropriate ways. Spiritual milk, like a child nursing, this beginning piece where we're just starting to root the gospel in our lives, right? Peter's reminding us, hey, listen, we need to learn We need to grow. We need to grow in our understanding of what our faith calls us to and what it means for us. Verse 4, it says, As you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So this is an image from our good friend, the prophet Isaiah, right? Where we spent most of 2019 in the book of Isaiah. We will get back to the book of Isaiah at the end of next month. And we will finish the book of Isaiah. We're in roughly middle of 52. We will go all the way through the end of 66, probably landing there somewhere at the beginning of summer. We will pick back up and finish the book of Isaiah. This is an image that comes out of it. That Jesus is a living stone, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. Lots of imagery inside of Isaiah reminding us that the foundation that we stand on is Christ. Now again... Take that in context, 800 years before Jesus even was born into human history, the eternal God, Jesus, was become flesh. 800 years later, Isaiah is proclaiming that Jesus is the foundation of our faith, right? That reminds us that the gospel has been proclaimed since the garden, since sin entered into human history. Same gospel for thousands of years, the same gospel we live in, that all are saved by faith in the Savior, Jesus. Whether you died anticipating a Messiah, whether you live to see him live and die and raise again, whether we live on the other side of it like we do, where we have the historical account of the apostles and the prophets and the testimony of one another, to know that Jesus is our Savior or if we live sometime in the future, whatever it might be, it's Jesus. Jesus is the, is the way that we need to build the foundation of our lives, or he is, I would say that better, he is the foundation we need to build our lives upon. That chief cornerstone, as one passage says. So I'm going to start at verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So a several passages, it's about, they're references to four different chapters in Isaiah roughly that talks about the foundation of our faith being Jesus. Talked about ahead of time, 
we live on the other side of Jesus' internet human history, right? So we live on the other side of some of the historical events that were prophesied 800 years in advance, roughly 800, right? And one of the greatest proofs for all of Scripture is that all of Isaiah has been challenged by people that are too smart for their own good to say there's no way that this book could be written hundreds of years before Jesus and be so accurate that he'd be betrayed by men, that he'd be this, and then the crucifixion is so clear. As we get back into Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53 is so clear, so detailed, that in the last century, people started saying there's no way it was written before Jesus was born. There's no way. Until they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran tablets, they found whole copies of Isaiah that had been buried hundreds of years before Jesus was born. This was God proclaiming the gospel to people before Jesus entered into in the flesh. And so now Peter's reminding us the same thing is true for us, but he moves from who Christ is to how that or who that makes us. He goes from Christ and who, the identity of Christ to the identity of the Christian. So let me give you just kind of a couple things. Here's one from Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation Whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes in Jesus, there won't be a waste of time. Jesus is the foundation. So here's five things that Peter then, because of what Isaiah said about Jesus, that Peter tells us about the church. That's my numbering mistake, sorry. I really like the number two. <laughs> Theology, not math. Clearly not English either, right? All right, so one, we are the dwelling place of God on earth. We right, are the dwelling place of God on earth. We are Jesus in our own neighborhoods, right? We, we take Christ to our neighbors, right, in flesh. We should be living little Jesuses, not really Jesus, not divine, not God, right, but like we should be living like Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. We are being built together. Number two, thank you, Marcia. There's a general rule in my leadership and the staff and the elders and deacons and stuff. The number one rule, you could ask Joe, wherever he is, man, don't make me look stupid. So making me look better is really a benefit. I do enough making me look stupid on my own. Two, the only two we have, we are being built together for a spiritual purpose. We are being built together for a spiritual purpose, something that God wants to accomplish through us, not through me, not through you and you and you, through us corporately. There's an important part of that. Number three, we, three, we are to be interdependent with one another, right? We need each other. We've talked about that when we talked about being the body of Christ and we talked about community. Really hard to love one another if you don't have a one another. Four, we are to be priests. That means mediators to the world. The job of the priest, the job of the priest was to be a mediator, to go to God on behalf of the people and go to the people on behalf of God. To play that role in between, to draw people to God and to tell people about God. That we are called to be that. By the way, if you're taking pictures of the screen, which is totally cool, just know all these slides are on the app and uh, that saves you a lot of frantic note-taking. Fifth one, we are to offer our lives to God completely. As God's people, we are to lay everything that is our lives, we're to lay that all out to God, that we are God's completely. 
So Peter builds that idea that we are built on the foundation of Christ and then defines that these identities belong to us. Verse 9, he continues, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to these promises to us or these proclamations about us, about who we are, and then what we're to do with it. Notice all the corporate references. You are a chosen race. And I love this church. There's about, this church is roughly, on any given day, about 30% white, about 30% Hispanic, about 30% Asian. So on any given Sunday, about 10% African American, right? Which is way more diverse than our city is, right? Uh, as you, but if you kind of take a big collection of this area, Norwalk and all that, it matches the neighborhood, right? You are a chosen race. Goes, you're beyond the color of your skin. You're beyond the geography where you were born. You're beyond that. You're a people for God. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Again, back to that mediator, that role in between God and humanity, a holy nation, right? Not because we're in America, right? Got that. Okay. Sometimes people think this is the holy nation. Anyhow, so a people for his own possession, like we are God's people. Jesus is not my personal Lord and Savior. I'm God's person. I'm Jesus' church, right? I'm part of Jesus' church. Yes, he's my Savior. But we lose that corporate peace when we get very individual, like he's mine, like Jesus is my homeboy, or, you know, like, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. I mean, like, but he's God. Let's not water that down at all. And I'm his. He's not mine. That we are that to God. He has chosen us. He has rescued us. He has waken us up. He's made us alive from spiritual death. He has transformed us. He has empowered us by his spirit. He gave his son for us. Super important, right? Listen why we are all that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the transformation you've had in Christ to the world, right? So blessed to be a blessing, right? Just as God says to Abraham in Genesis 12 too, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Peter reminds us that the truths of scripture remain. We are blessed in Christ for a purpose to be a blessing to others, right? That the things that God has given us, the treasures God has given us, be that healing, redemption, forgiveness, be that physical things, right? Time, talent, treasure, all kinds of things that we use in our life. Be that community, church, his word, be it our faith, our discipleship, whatever it is, the things he has given us, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are to give those things away, knowing that he always replenishes, always uses that. So it's not to dead into us. It's not deading in. It's not be, to be buried. That our witness is something that is to be shown to the world around us. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice the before and after, the transformation piece. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We said this earlier. We all struggle with going back to who we were before, right? That's what's built in especially in a short term. If you just came to faith, you're really, you know, at the first hiccup, you're drawn back to the way you used to live. And sometimes that'll raise its ugly head 10, 20 years down the road. 
there's that reminder, don't go back to that, right? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, you can understand, Peter writes primarily to churches filled with converts to Christianity, many of them who were Jewish, right? And, and many of them who had come out of Judaism following Jesus into Christianity. And so he reminds them, listen, remember your witness among Gentiles because Jews didn't hang out with Gentiles. For us as Christians, we just need to hear the world at this point. Consider your conduct around those who don't know Jesus. We can just hear it like that. That's what Peter is saying. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, right? So let them see your life no matter what they're doing. Let them see your response as obedient to Jesus. Let them see your life as good, right? The main point he's making is your witness to the outside world is important. So here's this, Acts 1.8. You guys all know this. Jesus' final words that Luke records in the opening of Acts, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there we are, end of the earth. You can't get too much further away from Israel than here, right? Here we are on the other side of the planet. Jerusalem, very Jewish. Judea and Samaria getting less and less Jewish and then to the ends of the earth. But here's what I want you to hear. You will be my witnesses, right? And the term witness or witnessing has been kind of used differently throughout the last hundred years of church as like in a courtroom, you give testimony to something, right? So that to be a witness is to go share something verbally. It's not what Peter is saying in this, or that's not what Jesus is saying in this case. That you, not only with your speech, but your lives will be witnesses to those that you encounter, right? That the life that you live will speak loudly and it will match your message about, in this case, and in this case, me would be Jesus, right? That your witness is not just what you say, but how you live. That's what Peter's aiming at. So Peter's going to transition to some application now. So we'll do the same. Verse 13, be subject to the Lord, to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. It's a simple command to obey all authorities, all authorities, and that by your obedience to human authority, that will be your witness to Jesus, right? I know every one of you is like, well, what about this? Right, okay. The exception, the only exception is when you are forced to do something against God. Think Daniel, right? Way back in the book of Daniel, how he goes so far into culture, he learns all the pagan Babylonian rituals, religions, literature, everything. Goes on to a pagan Babylonian diet up until the point where they force him or going to force him to participate in idolatry, that's where he draws the line. So it's not okay to go, oh, I disagree, so I'm gonna speak up. No, okay, so obey all human authorities. It's, I'm gonna reread it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Police, government, whatever, right? Every human institution. He's not even saying the church. He's saying human institutions. Whether it be the emperor is supreme, and let's just admit, this book was written about 60 AD. You know who the emperor was then? Nero. Do you know anything about Nero? 
nothing good, right? This is the, yes. <laughs> this is the one that used to impale Christians and light them on fire. So if you dislike Gavin Newsom or Trump or Pelosi or Obama or Bush or me, whatever it is, there's a worse example. Nero's worse. Let's just say that. And here's what he says. Obey every human institution. So our witness to the world in our speech. I'm going to put that up. I want to, you remember the first verse we read? Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right? Put away those words that have sin behind them. Just consider our political season. Consider social media. Consider the news. Consider the dialogue right now. Our witness to the world and our speech. We represent Jesus not only by our positions on issues, but by our speech. Consider today's examples. Malice, deceit, today, meaning today we're talking about. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. How do we misrepresent God in our speech? Can the watching world see a clear difference in us from the rest of humanity? Do you look different in your social media posts beyond your positions in the language that you use than the rest of the world? Far too often for Christians, it's exactly the same tones. It's exactly the same. And people are watching, and they can't understand how we profess Christ and then are so horrible to one another online or to non-believers, whatever it might be, right? And then we hide behind, well, I'm pro-life or I'm pro-this or I'm anti-this or I'm all probably good things. There was a declaration called the Declaration of the Barman in Germany written in 1936 as Hitler ascended to the chancellor. And the churches were being championed because Hitler was anti-Jew. And so the churches uh, were... They were getting a lot of free airtime. Let's just say it that way, right? That the Christian churches were being allowed to be who they were. And so they were milking that and using it to the best of their advantage, right? They were using that. Except some of the churches started saying, hey, listen, there is no way that we should be joining in the same kind of speech against Judaism or against something else. And so they write this declaration, the theological declaration of the barman. If you want to Google it, it's out there for free. It's almost 100 years old. And point three in it talks about speech. And it says that God has never permitted us to change our message or the tone in which we deliver it. If a church can write that as Hitler has ascended to chancellor, if Peter can write that while Nero is on the throne as emperor, we should live by it even easier. Fair enough? And I don't care who it is you do or don't like, the speech is terrible. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Our witness to the world is doing good, says Peter. Next slide. Peter says that we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. How we act towards others who do wrong things is our witness. Being a witness for Christ is about doing the right thing, especially when others are not. Doing the right thing with the right speech, never divorcing those two things from each other, but doing the right thing when everyone around us is doing the wrong thing, when everyone around us is joining in with horrible speech, with horrible tones, with horrible attitudes, with mocking things, when everyone around us is not submitting to authority. We need to remember to do the right thing. Today, doing the wrong thing is being championed. 
I don't think that that's untrue of history, but today, clearly, the wrong things are championed. Doing wrong things has now become the new moral high point. Doing the right thing when everybody else is doing the wrong thing is your witness to the watching world. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Our witness to the world. Next slide. American Christians need to hear and obey this command. Fear God means submitting and honoring all who are in authority. There's three passages, there's dozens that say the same thing, just for the record. God teaches us to honor human leaders so that we are distinct from the world around us, so that they can see Jesus in us. Consider Nero in 60 AD. When this was written, when Nero was impaling and lighting Christians on fire, when Christianity was being persecuted so that Peter, in his opening lines, compares it to the diaspora of the Jews. The Christians are being pushed out because of their faith that they are to honor human authority. Consider the witness to those around us when we act differently. See, we live here. We have a benefit. We have a voice. We get to vote. We get to speak. Right? We have the right to do things. However, as Christians, we have the obligation to do them well, to speak well, to say right things with right tones. As the barman said, we don't have the luxury of changing either the message or the tone in which we deliver it. That we should speak grace and truth, right? That our truth should always be kind and gracious. Verse 18, by the way, and you're thinking, right, if you are, I'm not saying you are, if you are, thinking of the harshest things Jesus said and the name calling he did, just ask yourself one thing, who did he say those things to? The religious, his own leadership, the Jewish leadership. He was harshest with them, no one else. Just consider that. Servants, be subject to your masters, verse 18, with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. I'm going to close with this right here. Our witness to the world is gentleness. We're called to be gentle in a world of hostility. Gentleness is not weakness or apathy, it's self-control. Often it takes more strength to be gentle and quiet. Our witness to the world is about glorifying Jesus, not proving our power or strength. There's a time and a place for power and strength. But most of it, most of life is a time for gentleness, a time for grace, a time for our speech to honor Jesus, even as we defend the things that we are most passionate about. You can be right, do right, speak rightly, defend the right things, and be humble and gentle. And you can, in that, be a witness to the watching world of who Jesus has called us to be. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I don't even know how, Jesus, that you stood there and took the beatings and the accusations of people without saying a word. And yet you did so, and then you call us to be gentle. You call us to be kind. You call us to honor you in our speech and in how we act. You have given us a witness to the world, whether it's good or bad. However we live is our witness to the world. 
It's not a set of metrics. We can measure everyone by a simple template. It's based on transformation. That wherever we were when we met you, when you woke us up from our death and sleep, when you made us alive in you, wherever we were, may we be different every day from then on. May the world see that so that when we tell the ones we love, those who are far from you but close to us, we tell them about you. Let our life match our language. May our words match our witness. And let us remember that everyone is watching. Whether or not we work for a church or we pray over our meal at lunch or we we ride with a, a patch on our back that says we are for you. Whether it's overt or subtle, the world knows and they're watching. It is our job to show them you and not our worst selves. Let those around me, Lord, see the transformation of my life, whether that be meeting me today or meeting me 30 years ago at my worst. Let the world around, let it see us. Let them see you in us. You let us see you in flesh. Shrouded your divinity with a human body and became human for us so that we could see. Now you call us to be that flesh to the rest of the world and you've empowered us to do so. Let us never treat that lightly. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. So it's in your name we pray.